Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Templey. nature it should be for people that are 18 years or older heed my warning people i do not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show the facts we're retelling you were presented to us by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims my description of the crime scenes are what i saw with my own two eyes if you're gonna get offended Please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. And today I'm going to be beginning a new series called Monsters. But before I start, I got to give a shout out to all you lifers out there who voted for us for Discovery Podcast Awards under best true crime podcast of 2020 we took first runner up we only lost a show called criminal and congratulations criminal they've been around since 2014 they have millions and millions and millions of followers they have a big production company national public radio and producers and studios and all that big stuff and There's no shame in the game of taking second place to criminals. So congratulations to them. But I got to tell you something. Huge lifers. Huge, huge, huge. Little real life, real crime. 18 months old. Took second place. First runner up. We beat out some of the biggest and the best shows out there. And I just want to tell each and every one of y'all, thank you, thank you, thank you. You once again have put us on the map, okay? Then last year, when I won it for Best True Crime Podcast, not Best True Crime, Best Podcast for Drama and Storytelling, that was a whole different rewards program than Discovery Pods. Discovery Pods has been around longer, and it's more prestigious, if you will, and they said the race was extremely close. So thank you. Huge, huge, huge deal to be runner-up for 2020. Best True Crime Podcast of the Year. Thank you, each and every one of you who voted. It was a popular vote, and y'all rocked it, and I appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, warning. This series is probably going to be the hardest thing you've ever heard. Now, listen, all murders are horrible and tragic, and I'm certainly not, I don't, I don't put any more importance on one murder than another. But when I I say horrible in this one, the overall story of what happened is unbelievable. But I have got to describe the crime scenes, what I saw with my own two eyes. And I'm not going to tell you everything because it's just, it's, that would be sensationalizing it almost. I, but I have to tell you a certain amount of what I saw. And and I'm not the reason I'm gonna hold back on it more than anything is because of this poor family, the victim's family. And God bless them. My heart goes out to them. 
And but this is a story that I've been holding on to, and it'll be in let's see, in five more days, it will be 14 years ago that this this murder, brutal murder happened. It's gotta be serious, y'all. This is one of those I told you I warned you that we're I'm gonna get into some of my bigger cases, and there will be no woodyisms, there will be no jokes. You won't be laughing at anything in this, I promise you. But I'm telling you right now, if you're going to get offended, turn the podcast off now. This this first episode is going to be, all of them are going to be tough in, in this series, but this is going to be, it's going to be hard. It's hard for me because I see it in my mind, but it's going to be hard for you to hear. I don't care how many true crime podcasts you've heard because you've never heard one like this. I'm taking you inside the tape. I'm taking you in to see what I saw. So stay tuned at the end of today's show for a lot of really cool announcements. And I love it and appreciate each and every one of y'all. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Monsters. On November 15th, 2006, I was working as a detective with the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office. And it was the evening time. I had worked the day shift. I remember I was driving home. I was working some other case, pretty big case. I think it was a rape. And I, I had to stay afterwards for a little bit. Otherwise, I used to get off around 4 o'clock, and I would be home by, you know, 4.30 or 5. But I was for some reason, I was at the office a little bit late. And as I got to my home, and at the time I lived in Watson, which is north of Denham Springs, the northwest end of Livingston Parish, if you will, for those of y'all that are not from Livingston Parish. Anyway, I get, I walk in the door of my house, literally, and I'm going to my bedroom to change clothes, and my pager goes off. And it said, 1021 LP200, ASAP. And that was Stan Carpenter, y'all. By this time, he was the chief of detectives. And Mr. Kearney had, had retired out. And uh, Mr. Kearney Foster had retired out. So I, I call it. I, I used to, when I came in my bedroom, I used to hang my my gun and my badge and all my police stuff in this one little chair where I got dressed in the corner of my bedroom. And I was just taking my stuff off, taking my towel. I had to wear a coat and tie every day. I was taking my towel off. And had hung the coat and closet. A pager goes off, 1021, which means give a phone call to Stan ASAP. And I called him. He said, he said, hey, Hoss, we got a, got a body. And he said, it's right up there in Watson. He told me the street. And he said, I need you there now. And I stopped for a second, and I think, and I told him, I said, I can be there in seven and a half minutes. And I hung up the phone, and I threw my badge, my gun back on, and I run out the door. And let me tell you why that's important. My OCD brain works like that. I quantify things in, like, minutes. And, like, I could tell you from where I'm at now in the woods to my parents' driveway, it takes me approximately just under 11 minutes to get from my chair to be at their house, right? And my wife, I drive her crazy with. I'm always like, oh, okay, so many minutes, right? So, this will come back up in the story later on, but I told him I'd be there in seven and a half minutes, something like that. I remember saying seven. But anyway, so it's my, my brain instantly goes into full force, body down mode, which meant when Stan said that, it was a murder, right? And actually he told me, he said, he said, I, he said, we just got the call, the 911 call in. He said, they called me. He said, I don't even think uniform is there yet, meaning uniform patrol. I said I could be there seven and a half minutes. I mean, because I knew where it was, and it wasn't far from my house. So I run outside, and I, I get in my unmarked big truck I had, and I'm wheeling out, right, rolling as hard as I can. And it wasn't but a couple miles away. And so I go up, and I turn onto the street, and the house that the 911 call came from sits kind of at the, I guess you would say at the end of the street, is. It was set by itself, and I'm going to tell you as I'm pulling up, it's dark. There's a, like a street safety light, yard light, whatever you call it, out, out on, the, on the street in front of the house, and I could see a group of people 
and a blue and white had just pulled up. A uniform patrol had just pulled up. And I get out and I hear all this screaming and, and carrying on. I'm like, hell, I, I don't know anything, right? I called on the radio. I said, 259-201-1097 at such and such, right? And hold the net. Meaning, because I don't know what's going on, right? I don't know if there's it's an active shooter situation. I don't know what the deal is. The radio room called me and, and said that, you know what, I'm not going to use names in this first episode, but said that the caller had called in and said they entered the residence and there was blood everywhere and there was a body down. So I go up with the uniform guy and, I'm, and they're, the family members are there and they're screaming and carrying on. And I said, listen, who called 911? And the one lady, she was very, very physically and mentally shaken up. And she said, I called, she's sobbing. And but there was another lady that was being even more loud or uh, loud and not belligerent, but just screaming all this crazy stuff. And I'll get to that in a minute. But she said, I called, I called. I said, Tell me what happened. She said, I got home and I go in and I, I saw my mama down. And there's blood everywhere. I said, Okay, is there anybody else in the house? She said, I don't know. She said, I called 911 and they, they told me to get out. I said, All right, just stay right here. And I told the deputy. I said, come on, man, we got we to gotta clear it. I said, so I go to the front door. Okay, let me describe the house from the outside. It's an older home, like a, probably what you would think, like a 1970s, what I call a ranch-style house. It was long. It's a big house, but it was long, single-story. Think of it as like wood, wood on the outside. And you're looking at it, it's long, and it's kind of dark out there, y'all, that they had that street light. And I go to the front door, okay? And I get to the front door, and I told him, I said, just stand right here. And I, took my, I took my pistol out, and I pushed the front door open. Now, when I push the front door open, I'm looking immediately into a living room, okay? Now, stick with me, because everything I'm going to tell you is important. Every, every single description I'm giving you out of my mind is important. Right in front of me, it's like some linoleum flooring. And right in front of me is a couch with the back facing towards me. At the end of the couch to the left was a chair, not like a recliner, but kind of like an easy chair or something. And right in front of the couch was this long coffee table. And then to the right end of the couch was another chair. And to the right corner that I'm looking at over is a fireplace. And on the other side of the room, there were some windows, I guess, looked out in the backyard or whatever. And to my immediate right, I didn't realize at the time, but to my immediate right was a gun cabinet. And by a gun cabinet, I mean a tall wooden one, y'all, with a glass front. But I could see to the right, down the linoleum pathway, if you will, into the kitchen and there's a dining, not a, not a formal dining room table, but like a kitchen table. And you could, there was some fluorescent light coming from the kitchen. That light was on. I could tell the, the, the kitchen went that way. Right. And there was, a, there was a light on in the living room, but not a bright light. It was kind of like a, in a corner or something. And now I go in, the door opens pushes in to my left so I can't see to my left yet and I'm describing everything I can see then I take another step in and I look to the left and I saw hell I saw a long hallway that ran the whole length of the the back side of the house and it had that floor I guess you call it linoleum I don't know it wasn't tile it was like um the older style flooring, and I was just call it linoleum. It was like a, a lighter white, maybe a yellowish pattern mixed into it. And I looked down the hall, and the hall starts immediately. Where I told you that last easy chair was in the corner. I'm looking at the couch, the coffee table, the chair. Then the hallway starts immediately to my left, not three steps from the doorway. And I look down, and all I see is blood. In fact, it was the largest amount of blood 
I've ever seen on any crime scene that I've ever been to, ever, in the blood had flowed down the hallway towards where I was standing. Now, stick with me. As soon as I saw the blood, I followed it with my eyes down the, down the hall. And about halfway down the hallway, but first of all, as you're going down the hallway, there was a door to the right, which I would find out later was a, a like a, um, a bathroom. Then you go a little bit further down the hallway and through the blood. And I'm talking about, well, y'all, when I say a blood, it was a lake of blood. The most blood I've ever seen. Looking down and I see a victim. I see a human being down halfway in and halfway out of a doorway to the left-hand side. I'm also noticing in this lake of blood, if you will, footprints in shoe tracks. and, and But I know right away that the victim is dead. I, I could tell you uh, without having to get near them that they were dead because there's no way a person could bleed this much and still be alive. But I had to proceed, right? And by this time, Calvin Bowden, he got there, Detective Calvin Bowden, and I think he's a lieutenant or something uh, with the uh, sheriff's office now. He's also, he's a polygraphist and actually sits on the state board. Calvin's a super smart guy. We were partners at the time. Super, super smart and and very good investigator, very good detective. And, and I said, Calvin, I said, come here and look. And he looked around. And he's like, damn. And I said, we, you know, got to go by. I don't want to mess with the crime scene. It's obviously dead. We've got to make sure there's nobody else in the back of the house. And he said, well, you go down the hall. He said, I'll, I'll cover him here, and then we'll go towards the kitchen and clear it. I said, all right. So I went down, and I walked as close as I could to the to the right-hand side of the wall. When I'm doing that, I happen to look into the that first door I told you about on the right. It's a, it's a bathroom, sink, toilet, and I think it's, you know, a shower tub combo. But I look in the sink as I'm going down. I, I mean, I have my pistol. I, I, don't, I don't think this is in my house, but you got to do it for officer safety. But you have to, you're not going to walk past the door without clearing it. So I'm looking in. I push the, the door open, my foot the rest of the way. Meanwhile, my pistol still pointed down the hallway. And I look in, and I see of like a like a fifteen pound bag of ice in the the sink in the the bowl of the sink itself. Now it somewhat melted, but there was still a lot of ice. It was a big bag; it wasn't like one of the small bags you get at convenience stores, like one of the big bags. I, I think at least fifteen pounds. And I'm looking in; no light on, and in the bathroom. And I'm looking in, I, but the sink's right there. And I see this bag of ice on it. And I'm like, what the fuck? And, but I could see blood. And now when I'm looking at there on this bag of ice and in the bathroom are what I call fat drops of blood. And meaning, y'all, meaning like my buddy Aaron Goolsby and I were hunting a couple weeks ago and, and he came and he cut his hand on a stand and it was dripping blood, right? Like drop and falling down big, what I call fat drops and, and splatting like the blood falling and hidden and splattering on the, the concrete, making almost a, a, a perfectly round fat drop. And then the, of course you have a guy, a little bit of splatter where it makes the contact, but there's that kind of blood drops going into this bathroom and on this bag of ice and, but not a lot of blood, but, but some, and I'm like, I'm, I'm, you know, kind of tripped me out, right? But I'm, I'm processing. I st- I'm still going. Bathrooms obviously is clear. I go down now. I'm really trying not to step in all this blood, but you can't avoid it. There's just no way. It's, it's too much. And when I, I get to where the body is, I, I'll tell you what, what my initial, initially what I saw. I get to the where the body is because I can't walk past. She, she's laying halfway in, or I say a quarter in and three quarters out 
of this doorway. And I observe a really elderly female laying face down in the blood. I observe that she's in, I guess you would call it a nightgown or a house gown, but the, the gown was pushed up around her waist and her panties were pulled down. I'm looking up, looking around. There's blood splatter everywhere. But I look into that bedroom. There's blood splatter all over the walls, the roof, all in the hallway. And I see some broken items, et cetera. And I'll come back to that. That room's clear, okay? And I'm, I'm going to come back to the scene in a minute. I have to finish clearing the house. And I go down, I stick it, I'm trying, I can't touch the wall either, y'all, because where she's laying, face down, there's blood splatter. Now, high-velocity blood splatter, and I'm going to tell you about that. Okay, let's say, let's say you get hit. Let's say you get shot. When the bullet first enters you, and it tears your skin, and it makes the penetration into your body, it's going to push blood out behind it. This is the best way I can describe it. It's going to push blood out behind it. The first blood that comes out from behind your skin, once the skin is broken and the bullet enters, the first blood that comes out is going to be moving at a slower rate than the rest of the blood that comes out. Like Let's say the bullet passes through. The, the first blood that comes out because it had the resistance from the skin and the bullet is going to come out slower exit the wound slower than the rest of the blood after the bullet passes through, it's coming out a lot faster. So what happens is that slower blood is coming out, bullet passes through, the rest of the blood that starts shooting out catches up with the first blood and hits it and makes it splatter, makes it almost like it explodes. And that's where you get blood splatter from, okay? So the blood splatter is from the faster blood hitting the slower blood and it splatters. And in, in this case, it was all of the wall and the roof. But here's the problem with that. There was a whole bunch of different blood splatter. And I mean a shit ton, the most I ever saw. But okay, so I can't touch the wall. And I'm trying not to disturb what is obviously a crime scene. And I walk down, I get to the end of the hall, look to the door to the left, clear, but I'm I'm now seeing, okay, the big the big lake of blood, if you will. Most of it had drained towards the front door. Now there was some around the body, some going back towards the back bedrooms, but not as much as it was on the other side, going towards the front door. So I'm going through. Now what I see to my right is the master bedroom. I find out later on it's a master bedroom. And it's it's a pretty big bedroom. And so I have to go in when I'm going in. Guess what I see? I see some more what I call fat drops of blood on the on the carpet and going into the bathroom. Not high velocity blood splatter, droplets of blood, and follow it away. It's important. So I clear the bedroom, but there's a bathroom inside the bedroom, and I pushed the door open. The light was off. I turned the light on, and I could see the blood droplets, and there were blood droplets, fat droplets, not splatter, in the sink. I'm like, okay, we're clear back here. I got I to get out. So I had to retrace my steps. I tried to step in exactly the same spots, going back out. Oh, actually, the first... When I first reached the victim, I did check for a pulse. And I didn't think there was going to be one, but I did check for a pulse. And, and I actually checked on one of her arms at the wrist area, and then there was nothing. She, actually, the body was cold. And the blood was somewhat congealed, y'all, meaning it had thickened. Now, as your heart pumps blood through your body, 
it keeps, you know, your body te- temperature keeps it warm, it keeps it thinned out, it keeps it moving. When you when you die, whether it's your blood settling to the lowest point of your body, which is lividity, or you have puncture wounds and your blood drains out, that blood will, for lack of a better word, it hardens as time goes on. It congeals, it thickens, and it's no longer being pumped through the body, right? So this blood is, is, is I mean, it's not like a day old, but it's obviously, it's hours and hours old to me through my experience. So I back, back out, back to the door where Calvin was and and I shut the door and he said, we're clear going into the kitchen. He said, I saw a couple of drops of blood. I said, fat drops. He said, yep. And I, and I told him what I saw and I said, she's dead. And, and I said, I checked no pulse. I said, you know, obviously blood everywhere. I said, Calvin, I said, there is blood splatter. Like I've never seen before on the roof, on the walls. In which means translates into a horrifically violent crime. And I said, we got to set up a perimeter. I said, Stan ought to be here in a few minutes. So we'll give, and Stan actually did show up. So he came in and we told him what we had. And, and forget what other detectives showed up, but we called in one of the uniform guys and told him, I said, you need to stand at this door. Nobody gets in, nobody gets out without you writing down their name and the time and who the, who they are and what is the reason for entering. Now, that's important, y'all, for a crime scene like this where you already have foot tracks in the blood and certainly a defense attorney would try to say, you know, they can come up with all these different plausible theories, especially if we let in uh, any looky-loos or whatever, looky-loo. Looky-loo is what I mean. So let's say the sheriff wants to show up show up, and he wants to come in and just look in and see. I'd be like, nope, sorry, that's it. This is my crime scene now. Nobody gets in. And basically that's what I told the deputy. I said, but if, if I tell you they can come in, you write down their name, their time, the time they came in, the time they left, et cetera. I said, because we're end up having to get DNA from everybody on this crime scene to exclude, et cetera, right? So we got the uniform guys to go out. I said, I want it all. You got to push those people back get to, uh, and back them up as far as you can. I want crime scene tape around this whole damn yard because we don't know. I don't know if there's, there's a weapon lying in the bushes. I mean, this has got to be worked. But it's got to be worked with the utmost care and professionalism that I've ever worked anything. And I'm going to tell you why in a second. So we, we agree. First of all, I called the radio room. I said, call the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab and get their technicians en route. I said, you can call off Acadian Ambulance this victim's deceased. Now, I didn't call this over the radio, y'all. I called on, on my cell phone. I said, 1022 Acadian, which means call them off. We don't need them to come run a strip. There's no way this lady's been alive in forever, in hours and hours anyway. Call Louisiana State Police Crime Lab and get them en route. Now, y'all, when you call the crime lab, most parishes in in it's not like you see on TV. Most parishes in, in the state of Louisiana do not have their own crime lab. They have to use Louisiana State Police on major cases, and, and Livingston was no exception. We did what we could, but on a major case like this, you need blood splatter experts. You need DNA experts. You might need a firearms expert. You don't know that yet, or you, whatever. But we let them come. They're highly trained professional crime scene technicians come and work it. The problem with that is it's now six, seven o'clock at night. They're all gone home. They go home at four o'clock, right? And and but they're on call and they have units, their crime scene units that they drive to and from work every day, especially when they're on call. So they have to page them out, tell them what we have, and they gotta come from wherever. Should they might live in they might live two hours away. They might live 30 minutes away. You just never know, right? So we got to get them started. 
And I told him, I said, call the coroner. And I said, but tell him, don't get in a rush because we're not going to touch the body until after we work the crime scene, after it's properly worked. And so got all that rolling, right? And then I told Stan, I said, listen, I talked to the lady that called it in briefly on my way in. I said, she came in here, her her footprints are going to be in this blood. We need to get her shoes. And and I said, actually, we need to interview them. I said, listen, I don't know what family members were what out there. And now by now, y'all, more family members were, were arriving. And I said, I don't know who it was out there, but there was one lady that was being a, a little bit off. And, and I said, but we need to separate them and we need to interview them. I said, but first we got to start with the lady who called in. He said, hey, Hoss, you're seen. You know what you're doing. You work it. I'm here to support you. I said, all right. And so I got with Calvin. I said, Calvin, we need to go get this lady and get her in the vehicle. We need to get her a statement from her as to what happened. So we did that. We go out there now. A bunch of people showed up. And and I told the uniform guys, and we had a couple more uniform guys show up. I said, no, you got you to gotta push them back further. You know, don't move any vehicles that were already here when we got here, like, like the lady who called 911. I said, we get the rest of these people down the street a little bit. As far as I'm concerned, this whole neighborhood practically is a crime scene, so I can prove otherwise. So they, they backed it up more with the crime scene tape, and, and Calvin and I approached the lady. And she sobbing uncontrollably, and I said, ma'am, I said, you know, you told me you're the one that called in 911. She said, yes, 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 I did. And she said, that's my mama. That's my mama. I said, okay, sweetie. I said, look, I, I need you to come sit with us and talk to us. This Detective Calvin Bowden, I'm Detective Woody Overton. I said, I need you to come sit with us in a vehicle and so we can talk to you and try to find out exactly what happened to your mama. I said, we have to work the case. And she's crying, you know, pretty much uncontrollably. And so we take her and put her in my big truck. And I put her in the front seat with me. And Calvin sitting behind her. And I said, let's introduce herself again. I said, what's your name? And she told me, she's rightfully so, y'all. And it breaks my heart to this day. She's just, just all crying and just freaked, right? I said, listen, sweetie. And she, she, she kept crying. My mama, mama, I said, listen, and if you don't already know, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, your mama, she's no longer with us, okay? And it's obvious that she's been a victim of a homicide. And then she starts crying, and she said, I know, I know, I saw all the blood, I saw all the blood. I said, listen, I said, just stay with me. I said, what's important now and what you can do for your mama now is help us. I said, we don't know anything. We have got to start working this case, and every minute that goes by, is a minute that we don't have to lose. And she's like, uh, and she's kind of rocking back and forth crying. I said, and then I put my arm around her. I said, do you understand? She said, yeah, yes, I understand, I understand. And listen, y'all, this would ultimately end up being one of the strongest ladies I've ever met, one of the strongest ladies that I've ever met, and just a really great woman. And But we'll get to that in the future. So I said, listen, I asked her name. She told me, I said, where do you live? She said, I live here. And she said, I said, who do you live with? She said, my husband and my mama. And she's back to crying. And my, my mama, but she, we got her calmed down enough. And Calvin was talking to her some too. And we'd done, this wasn't our first radio working on a homicide together. But, and I said, can you tell me your mama's name? And she did. And I said, how old is she? She said, she's 80 two years old. She said, I don't know. I mean, she's crying, y'all, when she's telling me this. She said, I don't know who would want to hurt my mama. All she's done it, her entire life is take care of other people. She said she raised orphans her entire life. She took in kids that didn't have parents and raised them. And that's okay. And she said she was the best. She said she was on a walker. She had to walk with a walker. She couldn't even get around. She said, why does they have to do that to her? Now, listen, she certainly was no crime scene expert, but 
I haven't told you everything that I saw yet. And, and she saw it, and it's obvious it was a brutal, brutal murder. And she's just going on about it. And I said, I said, just stay with me, sweetie. I said, now your mama and you and your husband live here. I said, tell me exactly what happened. She said, I got home and I walked in the front door and I hollered for my mom. She said, my husband wasn't home and he's usually home before me. And I hollered for my mom. And she said, I shut the door and I looked down the hallway and I saw all the blood and I saw my mom and I ran up and I knew. I knew when I saw her, and she said, I freaked out, and I ran back out, and I called 911, and they told me, don't go back in, and that's when you got here. I said, okay. I said, listen, I said, well, one of the things we have got to do, because we got to work, this is an obvious crime scene, we've got to get your shoes from you, because you did run through the blood, and and we've, we've got to take those evidence. I said, I'll get you whatever pair of shoes you want out of your house in a few minutes after we get done talking. She said, that's fine. Whatever I need to do, whatever I need to do. I said, so your mama is 82 years old. She said, yes, yes. And it's all she's ever done in her entire life is dedicate her life to other people, helping you know raise children. And I don't know why somebody would do this to her. I can't fathom it. I can't believe it. Everybody loves her so much. She's such a great person. And I said, I know, I know, you know, and, and I said, so your husband, what's his name? She told me. And I said, and where's he at? She said, I don't know. I just, she said, I tried to call him. He didn't answer. I said, okay. And you have lived here. You married how long? Just routine questions, going through questions, trying to build up stuff. And then I said, what else, who else did you call after you got here? She said, she said, I called my daughter's. I said they're they're out here in the crowd. She said, "Yeah, they were. Uh, one of them was here when you pulled up. The other one got here since you've gone inside the house." I said, "Okay, give me their names." So she did. And your husband, I, I, you know, his name and date of birth. And she, and I said, "Where he always gets home before you?" I said, "Why? Why do you think he's not here?" She said, "I don't know." She said, "He should have been home an hour before me, probably." And she said, "He worked at such and such." With some of his family, it was a, 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 you call it a specialty lumber company, I guess. And she said, but he's not here. And I said, can you give me his phone number? So she did. And and I said, I'm going to call, try to call him real quick so he can be here with you. I called, and it went straight to his voicemail. She said, "That's I don't understand that. She said, uh, he, he, he always answers his phone. Well, Calvin, you know what Calvin and I were thinking, right? Whereas the husband, and that's number one. And we just got more questions from, and, and she said, and I asked her about her husband. She said, he's he's a Christian man. She said, he's a reformed, many, many years ago, reformed drug addict, and but he's a Christian. He's got a great job, and, you know, we've been married, and, and you know, I know he loves me, and he loves my mama, and, it, you know, he loves my kids. And I said, well, how old are your kids? And the daughter she was talking about, and y'all, they were adults, right? One of them, I think, was like 39. The other one was, I don't know, maybe mid mid to late 20s, maybe early 30s. But and she told me, and, and you know, we just got all the information we could from her. And then and I told her, I said, listen, I'm, I'm going to let you get with your family. And I actually, I think Calvin went back in and, and she she had some slippers or something in the washroom. We did take her shoes and, and bag them. But y'all, when you take bloody evidence, you always bag it in a brown paper bag. You never seal blood evidence in a plastic container because it'll mildew, it'll rot. And and the 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 pores in the paper bags allows it to breathe. So took her shoes, did that, got her Got her back with the family's will. And and I told Calvin, I said, we got to interview the daughters real quick. Now, meanwhile, well, look, we're still waiting on, on the crime lab to get there. I said, we need to interview these daughters, and we need to find out where this cat's at, meaning the husband. He said, hell yeah, you're right. But but then the crime lab pulls up, and the coroner had got there. He'd come up and knocked on the window when we were talking to the victim's daughter, and I just waved him off. And, and then we got out, and I told the coroner, I said, dude, you might as well just – you know, you could have, you can go home and eat supper because it's going to be a while. I mean, that's, he says, it's that bad? I said, yes, yeah, that bad. So the crime lab gets there. 
two technicians and I told them what the deal was. I said, it's it's a massive crime scene. I said, there's blood from one end of the house to the other. The 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 deceased is about halfway down the house. So she's 82 years old. Could possibly, or it's made to look like a rape. And I said, but the trauma, uh, I said, it's the worst I've ever seen. And, and I've worked with these technicians before, right? They only had so many of them that were on call. And over the years, I'd worked a major homicide with every one of them. And you develop a bond with them. This was long before I went, well, this is a year or so before I went to the state police as a criminal investigator. But I already knew them. So we work cases together. And when you work those cases, the big cases, that ultimately they end up going to trial. You end up being sequestered together during the trial and all that. So you really get to know them. And, but I knew, hey, let me tell you something. There, I put Louisiana State Police Crime Lab technicians up against any in the world. They're that good. So they get their plan on how they're going to start work. And then they, they got massive bags of shit to carry up. Everything from DNA swabs, blood collection materials, mounds of paper bags for any possible evidence, evidence markers, just... It's a lot of stuff. So they get their stuff. We make entry into the living room and get ready to start processing the crime scene. And and but they walked in. Now these are hardened veterans. They walked in. They looked down the hall, and, and one of them, I'm never forgetting. He said, "He said, holy fuck, man." He said, "She she must have bled to death, right?" And I said. I said, well, I don't know. I mean, it certainly looks that way with the amount of blood. He said, that's the most blood I've ever seen, ever. I said, I get that. And he says, I guarantee you she bled to death. I said, well, you certainly would think so. And there's one more thing I forgot to tell y'all. Um, when I first walked in, I smelled burning, like freshly burnt paper, okay, or something that had been freshly burned and when we're getting there they're setting up their stuff inside the door the fireplace was right there i walked over and i looked in the fireplace and there was a condom wrapper that was partially burned in in the, in the fireplace but anyway i think i'm gonna stop it here for this week if you know this case and from lp and you think you know this case you don't know it the things that I'm going to tell you have never been released. And it's a horrible, horrible case. My my heart goes out to the family. But I hope in telling this, when when I, all it's all said and done, maybe somebody out there will be able to stop this from happening to their family member. So that's it's just too much to go into, y'all. And, and, and I'm going to stop it for today. Next week, I'm going to start with us working the crime scene. And I'm going to do a couple of announcements now. Justice for Courtney Coco, as always. Y'all, I truly believe you heard the episode last week. Special prosecutors on it. I truly believe that they're going to be making the rest any day now. So that that is what it is. Miss Barbara Blunt's case. Let me tell you something. The difference between Courtney Coco's case and Miss Barbara Blunt's case is Miss Barbara Blunt's case was worked correctly from the beginning. Courtney Coco's was a shit show for the 15 years before I got to it. Okay. N- nothing other than the police work out of Texas by Detective Ravelle had been done correctly. So the difference is when Sheriff Art asked me to help with real life, real crime, and our listeners. They were, when I went in and reviewed their case files and all that stuff and, and delved off into it deep, there's nothing I would have done differently. But it was like there was a perfect storm blocking her case and stopping them. But they never stopped working. And unlike Rapides and Alexander PD that lied to Miss Stephanie on Courtney's case, these guys have never stopped working it, and they want justice for Miss Barbara. So when you message me, and there have been a couple of, you know, they're, we're always going to have a couple of haters and they say, oh, you're not doing anything, da 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 That's just simply not true. Working on Miss Barbara's case, still taking tips, and I want you to call in your tips. They're still taking tips all the time, but you have no idea 
what we're doing on Miss Barbara's case. So, but tips are important. And sharing episodes and sharing Miss Barbara's story is always, I tell you, sharing equals tips. Tips lead to arrest. Okay. Difference again between Courtney Coco and Miss Barbara Blunt's case is even when I'm not talking about Miss Barbara Blunt's case, you have some of the finest law enforcement professionals in the world that are working Barbara Blunt's case, even though it doesn't look like it. Once again, we get started on Miss Barbara Blunt's case and what happens? COVID. And then unfortunately, the sheriff has to reallocate the people he had allocated for Miss Barbara's case to go work. COVID, there's a lot of things you don't, you'll never understand that he's having to deal with, like extra personnel in jail and all the stuff they have to do now. I'm talking about people that don't have anything to do with jail have to go help work in the jail because they have to wear safety stuff and dealing with people and booking them in and keeping things. I mean, the, your sheriff's office is dealing with a ton of stuff, but it doesn't mean they've stopped working cases, okay? But some things have to move a little bit slower. But that being said, I've been telling you that Toby Tomplayer, executive producer, and I are going to be starting a new cold case podcast. And I'm going to tell you, listen, at then when I close this today, the name of the podcast, and we've never released it before, the name of the podcast is Don't Call It a Cold Case. So stay and listen for, when I sign off, listen for an excerpt from that. We're going to do a pre-release of the first episode. It's just a, a drop in the middle of next week so you can hear what it's about. Totally different than what we've been doing. But I'm going to tell you this. The first case, and we've been working on Toby has been killing himself. And we've been working on it for months and months and months. The first case is going to be Miss Barbara Blunt's. And that's right. We're going to work Miss Barbara Blunt's case until we solve it through. Don't call it a cold case. And Patreon members, as always, thank you for your support. I appreciate you. I'm sorry I couldn't do the live video this week because I'm in a spot where I don't have the internet service. But I'm trying to correct that. But you, you did get this episode commercial-free and unedited a day earlier than everybody else. You will be getting your November patron bonus full episode the week of Thanksgiving when I'm not releasing anything to anybody else uh, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So that's coming. And finally, LOPA, Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. Be a hero. Go to LOPA.org and sign up. Takes a couple minutes. Be an organ donor. Okay, COVID is destroying all these people's lungs, all these people having to get lung transplants that would literally die if they didn't get them. And every one of them that gets a lung transplant is because somebody signed up as an organ donor, okay? But it's so much more than lungs, and we're going to be doing some LOPA episodes in the future. But, y'all, it's so important. People are dying, and when you die, you're not going to care. And signing up to be an organ donor doesn't mean they're taking your shit. It just means that if you are fit the criteria when you are deceased, they'll they'll take it. Be a hero. Go to lopa.org. Sign up. And when it asks how you, you heard about them, there's a, a section for LPTC. It's Livingston Parish Literacy and LPLTC. I forget what it's. Livingston Parish Literacy and Technology Center Criminal Justice Students. Check that box first, y'all. They're how I got involved. And in Crystal Hardison, Southeastern, uh, Miss Kim Alvin, the principal there at the school, and certainly Kelly Jennings. Those students there are trying. They're making it their mission to get people to sign up to be an organ owner. Please go do it. It's hugely important. And if it was your, one of your family members that's dying and needed an organ, you would be praying that people would sign up to be an organ donor. So be a hero. Give the gift of life. Give the gift of sight. Go sign up and, and 
There also is a spot for real life, real crime. If you want to check that after you check Livingston Parish, Livingston Technology Center, Criminal Justice Students, Lopez put us on their website, and I think that's pretty cool. But it's our mission, my mission, Woody Overton's mission, to get as many people to sign up and, and support that agency. It's a nonprofit agency, y'all. And, and just go support them, please. And I'll get off my soapbox on that. Going to be continuing Monsters, the series, week after week after week until it's concluded. You've got to stay tuned. You won't be sorry. Every murder victim had a mama. went missing from this home in Holden for families. Intensive searches on the ground and by air. We're currently searching the premises, uh, we're searching the woods, and, and you know, we're searching the area. Barbara Blunt disappeared three weeks ago. Four weeks ago. Barbara Blunt went missing from her home just six weeks ago. Three months. Six months later. And still nothing. 58-year-old Barbara Blunt disappeared from her home in Holden. Authorities are still baffled. Even the FBI is involved. Even the FBI was called in, but still, the case is not solved. Barbara Blunt disappeared from her home in Holden in 2008. Her whereabouts still unknown. What happened to Barbara Blunt? What happened to Barbara Blunt? After seven years, still nothing. This has been almost 12 years since 58-year-old Barbara Blunt disappeared from her home in Holden. It's a cold case that's now starting to heat up all over again. A criminal investigator and an award-winning podcaster are teaming up to handle a cold case that has haunted authorities for more than a decade. And I'm Woody Overton. You host a real life, real crime, the podcast. And until next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on murder by you. Peace. Get ready, you're gonna do Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Template.